Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Brian Macker with Remax Advantage Realty in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Last year, he closed 185 transactions with a total sales volume of $41 million. His average sales price was $223,000, of which 71% were buyers and 29% were sellers. He operates a team with six members, two buyer agents, one closing coordinator, one listing coordinator, one errand runner, and one team leader. Brian Macker is the team leader of the Brian Macker team. He has been an agent for 27 years. In this call, Brian talks about generating 90% of his business from past clients and sphere of influence, how he turns 10% of his database into closings year after year, making 30 to 50 calls per day. Scripts for calling 1, 3, 6, and 12 months after closing. Scripts for agents to reestablish relationships with neglected past clients. How to eliminate evening and weekend appointments. Direct mail and call schedule to his database. How to structure an ideal day and an ideal week. TV commercial that brought in 28 closings last year. Team dynamics profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brian. Thanks for having me today. Hey, Brian. It's great to have you. Brian, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I started my real estate career kind of when I was 19. I was working in the grocery stores. I worked at a local chain. I was a produce manager, and when I was 19, I bought my first house. Uh, It was a rental property, and from there, I bought another duplex, and from there, bought a house and a gym, all working at King Supers. And uh, I worked in King Supers, and I worked briefly in the wine sales business, and then I jumped into real estate, realizing that was kind of a dead-end road working in the grocery business. I had to wait for people to die before I could ever get promoted. Seniority in unions really prohibited growth. Did you say that that you bought investment rental property before you bought a home for yourself? Yes, I did. I was uh, going to school part-time, and it was kind of by accident. I was going to live in it, but the uh, sellers I bought it from were building a new home, so they wanted to rent it for six months. And uh, when it was covering my payment, when they left, I rented that again for another year uh, to some friends of theirs. And uh, then I sold that and bought a duplex. After two years, I made enough money to go buy a duplex. I never, and I never lived in the duplex either. Wow, that is fantastic. And did you continue uh, investing in real estate all the way up until today? 
Yes, I have. I've bought and sold uh, quite a few of my own properties, and today I have several rental properties, and I'm a part of some groups that own big, big pieces of real estate. Well, going back to when you got started, did you start full-time or part-time? Initially, I started part-time for about four months, and uh, then I quit the grocery business and jumped into real estate uh, full-time. At that moment, my wife at the time, uh, she had just graduated from nursing school and we said, okay, we can depend on your income while it's slow. What I didn't know is that she was going to divorce and leave me with a six-month-old child uh, uh, shortly after I had quit. So I had to learn real fast on how to be good at real estate. No doubt. And so that brings me to my next question. Did you have a, a slow start or a fast start in your real estate career? My first year, I sold 24 homes. I was uh, rookie of the year, uh, so I would say I got off to a pretty fast start. I had good time management skills from both the grocery business and the wine sales business, so I was able to pack a lot into a day and also be a single dad to my son. And how old were you at the time? At that time, I was, uh, let's see, I've been doing it 28. I was 25 years old, and I, had, like I said, quit the grocery business and uh, jumped into real estate. So, uh, yeah, I was 25 years old, and that first year I sold 24 homes, and then I sold 16, and then we had a very bad market depression in the 87, 88 time frame, uh, probably as bad or worse as what we've experienced for the last several years. How did you survive that first nasty recession? What I did was work expired. I was able to get uh, good pricing on those. I worked neighborhoods that other people didn't want to work. That started drying up and then foreclosures hit the market. And so I sat to open houses at foreclosures and ended up working for a foreclosure company at that time from 88 to 90, uh, where we were representing HUD. So I was able to manage, at that time, we were managing a hundred and some odd properties. And then I was uh, doing the market analysis on all those properties, along with uh, sitting them open and getting small commissions off of those. We were only getting like 1% at the time. So you kept yourself flexible. Very flexible. And I adapted to the conditions that I had and where I had to go to make money. And I think you mentioned it, but just to to clarify, how long have you been in the business? I've been doing it a full 27 years, starting my 28th year this month. August of uh, 85 is when I started. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, we sold 185 homes. Most of them were, well, 71% were uh, sellers. The other 29% were buyers. Your sales volume last year, do you remember what it was? We did uh, just over $41 million in sales volume. Our average sales price was 223 if I'm remembering correctly. And how many homes did you sell in your best year? Uh, my best year was in 2004, and we closed uh, 220 homes. And we actually had a two- to three-year run where we sold 218, 220, 217 homes. What changed? It sounds like you might have had a little dip there and now you're bringing it back up. We did in uh, 2002, three, and four. We were representing a builder, so we had some extra sales as a result of uh, the builder business. And then in 2005, it seems here in Colorado Springs, we see recessions a little sooner than other people. 
plus we were dealing with a lot of agents who had come into the market. At that time, we had about 4,500 agents servicing 450,000 people. And so it was like one agent for every 10 people. It was kind of crazy that way. I was coaching with a coach that did not work out. And I saw our business go from, you know, 220 down to 170 down. We hit a low point in 2007 where we did 135 transactions. And since 2007 to today, we've, it's been growing steadily again back up. Let's step back for a minute and talk about your market. Where is Colorado Springs, Colorado? We are 60 miles south of Denver. Uh, Our area is primarily a military community. We have five military bases here. Uh, It's a very conservative community. The service area that we do is Colorado Springs, El Paso County, which is approximately 500,000 people. The median income is not super high as it's all military dependent. What percentage of your business is military related? I would say whether we're on the sell side or the buy side, I would say over 50% is VA, uh, uh, military related. A lot of the people who work with the contractors, uh, the military contractors are retired military. So oftentimes we see uh, VA contracts coming through on our listings as well as buyers who are buying homes. We're going to get into your marketing in a minute, but while I'm on this, do you try to position yourself as a military agent? We list ourselves with sites as uh, military that we service uh, VA. I also use key terms in relocation efforts, say in Fort Carson, uh, Schriever Air Force Base, Falcon Air Force Base, Air Force Academy, NORAD. Those are all kind of key hot buttons for our area, so I use those keywords uh, in a lot of our websites and a lot of our marketing pieces. Please describe your current real estate market. Today's market in Colorado Springs is very, I would call it scared. Um, Since we are so military dependent, we have been affected by the sequestering and the budget cutbacks of the military. Uh, Our military contractors, defense contractors, missile drivers, all of their jobs have been cut back to almost nothing. There's been a lot of layoffs in that sector of our economy. We have no what I would call high-end jobs anymore. Most of the uh, contractors have been laid off or moved. We lost Intel a few years ago. So we are dependent on rebuilding type businesses, soft businesses. We've been able to attract a couple insurance firms like USAA and State Farm. We get a lot of mid-level computer type people doing jobs at various companies. Military is a lot of our stuff. So what we see here is our high-end market, which is basically four, five hundred and above, is frankly very, very slow and still dropping, whereas two hundred and below, it's bidding contest almost on everything. Two to three hundred, it's pretty good. Three to four starts slowing down. And once you get above four hundred, we jump from having a six-month supply of homes to an 11-month supply of homes. You said a, a lot of jobs are being lost. Are you seeing a, a population decrease? Are you staying even? What's happening with your population base? Do you know? 
Uh, we have stayed very even because the people who have left have been replaced by uh, laborers, contractor types. Unfortunately, in our city, we've been uh, hit by a couple fires. Uh, we had the Waldo Canyon fire last year, and this year we have the Black Forest fire. The Waldo Canyon destroyed 300 homes. The Black Forest fire destroyed 500 homes. So we have a lot of uh, mid level uh, workers, uh, construction crews, suppliers, those kind of businesses that are thriving and doing very well here because of, unfortunately, the problems we've had. And construction is very high in, in the 250 and below. That's the market that seems to be attracting all the new construction and the people who are working here. Just to clarify for the folks listening, those fires are not have not been in the middle of the city. Those were forest fires out on the edges, out in the uh, rural areas. Is that correct? No. Uh, the Waldo Canyon fire came right down into the west side of the city, burned around the Guard of the Gods area, up into an area called Mountain Shadows and Rock Rimmon. And those were right, pretty much, they are in city limits in town. And Black Forest came right onto the city limits came right up to my son's high school. Wow. It got close. And you and your family were okay? We were fine. We were on pre-evacuation. We got to pack and kind of be ready in case, but uh, that's as close as we had to go. They kept everything. The actual fire bases were at Pine Creek High School, where my son goes, and we live a mile south of that. So we were at least a mile and a half to two miles from the fire. Oh, wow. That had, that had to be scary. It was crazy. Let's look at your market again. If you were to look out at the market today, what percentage of the properties do you think are REO and short sale versus traditional retail? Today, uh, retail sales versus REO, it's probably now gone all the way up to about 80, 85% uh, retail. Only 10 to 15% short sale and REO. It seems like last year we did quite a bit more REOs than we have this year. The inventory is not hitting the market, even though there seems to be foreclosures in and around neighborhoods. But today, I think the sellers are people who have tried to sell the last couple of years and now can. The market's improved enough where they can at least get out and break even, and they're choosing to do so and move back to other areas of the country or downsize or just get out and buy a bigger home if they're still employed well. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? My niche, my specialization, I feel is working resales and working, I pretty much work from downtown north if I had an area, but our city and area is really too small to have ourselves niche marketers. We're a very mobile city, so you can get from one end to the other in 15 minutes, so we don't have any special niche. If I have a niche, I'd call, I work my sphere of influence and past clients harder and better than most anybody else. Could you please tell us, say, the, the top three to five ways that you generate business? My top three areas of getting business is following up with my clients via phone and mail, I have a TV commercial that I do, and then I would say internet is our third best way of getting business. And my understanding is your work with your past clients and your sphere of influence generates the majority, the vast majority of your business. Is that correct? Correct. 
I have a database of uh, j- right now a working database of just over 1,600. We actually have about 2,000 names in our database, but 1,600 to 1,700 that are it's moving, fluctuates because I add other people's uh, buyers and I take away some sellers who leave and get uh, we've lost touch with. So I'm calling those people three to four times a year and they're getting monthly mailings. And as a result, I can pretty much count on that database to generate anywhere from 130 to 150 transactions. Let's break that down a little bit. You said you, you have a, a database of about 2,000, about 1,600 to 1,700 with full contact information. If you were to look at that database, what, what group of that database, how many are past clients versus your sphere of influence? Wow. Uh, I would say it's probably 80% uh, past clients and 20% sphere of influence. You've sold a lot of homes in your career. You've been doing this 27, now 28 years. Mm-hmm. Just over 4,000 homes, I think, is where we're at. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Okay. And you've been able to keep track of those. Now, you also said a lot of that is transient, though. A lot of these people are moving with the military out. Do you continue to contact and stay in touch with the people when they move out of your city? I do. Uh, it's amazing what that does. So I've got a seller who left here 16 years ago that lives in Pennsylvania. He's a retired Navy officer. And he has asked me to who to call in each area that they have moved since they left here 16 years ago. So I've had four referral checks from agents in San Diego, uh, Seattle, Long Island, and now in Pennsylvania, plus the sale that I had in their neighborhood. And the buyer of their home, actually, I got to sell their home, and that buyer has uh, uh, remained a past client as well. Let's talk about how you've built this database, who goes in it, who doesn't go in it, et cetera. It sounds like anybody who's a past client goes in. Who else goes into this database? Past clients go in there. Obviously, my sphere of influence went in there, and... The people that keep coming in and going out, if I get a, as I'm sitting across from the table, most agents that I see, I know won't follow up with that client. So we often adopt other people's clients. If it was a agent, I know you interviewed Jason uh, this last month. If it was an agent like Jason, I wouldn't follow up with his clients. But if it were Joe Schmo that uh, it, with Joe Schmo Realty that I know is not going to follow up, I would adopt that client. And what I do with that client is uh, I put them in my database. I oftentimes don't have a phone number, but if I can grab a number from on the contract or on the check or from their earnest money check or in communications, then we'll grab that phone number an email, and so I'll call them at one month after the sale. And I will call them and say, how's the house going? Or I'll send them a note saying, thank you for buying the home. I hope it's working well. Let me know if you need anything. And then at three months, six months, nine months in a year, they will get a call and or a note or something from me asking if I can be a service. And where that comes in real handy, there was a home we sold on Sproul. And so I sold the home, adopted the client, and we happened to have their number. I called her and I said, how's the home working? And she said, well, it's working good except for the lower level toilet has been clogged pretty much ever since we got there. And I said, well, let me let my handyman go over and take a look at it. 
turns out it was her child's baby shoe that was stuck in the toilet. She felt very embarrassed, apologized, offered to pay the contractor. And I said, no, 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 he's on service with me. Don't worry about it. Well, later I got the neighbors on both sides and across the street from her as a referral and her sale and her next buy on her home just by sending a handyman over and spending $60. So the follow-up phone call is very strong. Then if we, I do that with all of the buyers that come into our system. My buyer agents may work them, but I do the follow-up. So I'll take the buyers that come in from wherever they've come in, a referral or whatever, and I will call them. I meet them at the initial interview most of the time and say hi. And then I follow up at one month and say, so how did my team do? How did Leanne do? Did my Stephanie do well? Did my team perform the way uh, you needed them to? 99% of the time, it's great. But if they say something, I say, thank you very much. And then I send them a gift certificate for negative feedback because I learn more from negative feedback than I do from positive feedback. Then I call them at three months, six months, nine months, and a year, again, following up on the home. And then after a year, they get called three times a year religiously on their anniversary date and every four months. So I clock it that way throughout the month. So any given day, I'm making anywhere from 30 to 50 calls. Let's go back to those people on the other side of the transaction from you, the co-op agents, client or customer, you said you start to contact them one month after. Do you ever get resistance from that that buyer or seller when you start calling them? Very, very rarely. Now, I won't, I don't go after other people's seller. It's my seller that I would be talking to. And with my seller, I'm asking, did they get their escrows? But I haven't ever had a buyer push back about the follow-up I've never had anybody push back, and in fact, all of them said, my agent never called, my agent never called, thank you for caring. No one has been upset. And because of that, you've been able to take those folks and add them to your database. Yes, and that's helped replenish the ones that somehow or another we lost or we didn't care to keep working with. Let's go into your your typical transaction where you bring in a buyer, becomes immediately becomes your past client. Everybody's familiar with that. You said they're often working with one of your agents, which we'll come back to later. So they're not seeing you a lot. You did talk to them at the initial interview. And then I assume you maybe, you, did you see them at the closing? Nope. No, I haven't seen them at the closing. I don't talk to them or anything unless there's some sort of problem until one month after closing. Then one month after closing, so they've already moved into the home, and then you give them a call. How does that conversation go? Could you give us a script? What what do you say in that call 30 days after the the buyers moved in? I'd say, and I'll pretend you're that uh, buyer. Hey, Mike, this is Brian over at Remax. How are you? I'm doing great. Good, good. How's your house performing? Everything going well over at your home? Yeah, everything's going well. Thank you. You guys unpacked yet? Well, it's a slow process, but we're getting there. It is. That's why you have 30-year mortgages. you got plenty of time to get packed and settled in there. <laughs> That's true. So uh, tell me, I, you know, so we can do our job better, how did Leanne do in helping you? Was she helpful? Did she do well? Oh, yeah. She did a great job. We'd highly recommend her. Awesome. Awesome. How was Stephanie and the rest of the team? Were you cared for? Yeah, I was really impressed. She she called us a lot, and it was really easy to work with her. 
Fantastic. Well, I just want to invite you to call us. I've been selling homes for 27 years, and um, we're well-connected with a lot of vendors and stuff. And if you need anything or have any problems with your home, please give us a call, okay? Sounds good. Great. Thanks, and we'll be talking to you. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So then I'll call you at three months and have somewhat of a similar conversation. Before we go to the three months, do you try to talk to them in person? What happens if you get a voicemail? I pretty much say the same thing. And frankly, to get through my calls, I prefer to be talking to voicemail. And, but if I got voicemail, I'd say, hey, this is Brian over at Remax. Just wanted to call and check in, see how your new home's performing. Also, how did my team do? Did Leanne and Stephanie do a good job? Please give me a call. Uh, let me know. You can go to my private number at let, let us know. And if there's any issues I need to correct, let me know. And I want to invite you also, if you need anything, I'm well connected. Let us know how we can help. Thanks. Uh, that's the first call. What do you say at the three-month mark? Three-month mark, I say, it's hey, this is Brian, Mike. Uh, it's been three months that you've been in your home. How's everything working? Uh, same, same conversation. Pretty much the same thing, but then I'll say, you know, by the way, you know, Leanne hasn't done a thing since uh, she sold you that home. <laughs> no, just kidding. But if you, if you hear of anybody needing our services, let us know. Okay. Okay. So you bring in a little more of a request for referral at that point. That's correct. And then the six months conversation. Six months, I say pretty much the same thing. Then I'm getting more into a Ford conversation, family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. And what I'm doing with that is trying to get to know them a little bit better because I don't know them super well yet. So now I'm trying to start getting to know them so I can help them and or see what we can do down the road and making notes because like Larry Kendall says, oftentimes I know their urgency and their situations before they do. Let's have a little bit of that conversation. Show us how you would introduce some of the Ford concepts. Let's try a little mock six-month conversation. Okay. Hey, Mike, this is Brian over at Remax. Just want to call. It's been six months you've been in your home. How are you? Hey, Brian's going well. Yeah, how are the kids doing at school? Are they enjoying the school? You know, I didn't know if they'd, they'd be able to get in there, but they have. They've done a great job. They've really excelled. Do you like the school and everything they're doing? Uh, yeah, I think we do. I think we're pretty happy with it at this point. Awesome, awesome. Well, I know the job was new. How's the job working out? Well, <laughs> as you know, it's always, it's always different trying to figure out the new system, but, but I think I'm figuring that out now. You guys been doing anything fun or spending any time this summer vacationing or you just been settling in? Well, we've, we've gone skiing a couple times. That was something new and, and that's, been, uh, that's been really interesting. Awesome, awesome. So you got any plans for the upcoming holiday season? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to go back and see family. Awesome. Where's, now, where are they living at? Uh, they're back in North Carolina. Oh, I have relatives in Raleigh area. I love that area, especially during Thanksgiving. The weather's just about right there. Absolutely. It's going to be gorgeous. We're really looking forward to it. Well, Mike, I just want to let you know we were thinking about you. And if you do need anything, give me a call and uh, uh, let your friends at work know that we're here if you need anything. Uh, sounds good. Thanks. Take care and have a good, good day. Or I'll say a good month or if it's a holiday, I'll get into that. Well, that was great. Thank you for doing that, Brian. 
So it's a, it's a very casual conversation. You have kind of the topics or ideas that you want to touch on. I also noticed you didn't do like a hard sell at the end of who do you know who wants to buy or sell? It was more just a, a low-key introduction to your services and to ask them to start thinking about you more. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. And I think, um, like I said, I went through a coaching experience in the mid, in the 2005, six, seven, that kind of emphasized, who do you know? What do you know? That kind of more of the heart. And I almost feel that's when I saw my business go down, down, down. And I got rid of that particular person and regrouped and reset to what my morals and ethics were. And every year it's gone back up. How about at the 12 month mark, how's that conversation go? Hey, Mike, this is Brian over at Remax. How are you? Great, thank you. Well, I just wanted to say happy anniversary. It's been a year now that you've been in your home. Everything going well for you? <laughs> Good. When you said anniversary, I thought I forgot to get a present. <laughs> no, no, this is your house anniversary. I don't, uh, I don't do a very good job on your wedding anniversary. Sorry about that. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> the house good. and everything going well? Yeah, it's going great. Kids and job okay? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm, now I'm a veteran. Awesome, awesome. Well, I just want to let you know we were thinking about you. Have a happy holiday season, and you holler if you or your friends need anything. Okay? Hey, that sounds great, Brian. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Bye bye. By now, they've talked to me four times this year, so I'm making that phone conversation a little faster. Now, you said that after that point, you start to go to three calls per year. You call on the anniversary, four months after the anniversary, eight months after the anniversary, then on the next anniversary. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's how you're able to spread that flow of calls out over the years so they're not all bunched up into one month. That's correct. It just kind of scatters through the month. And, you know, I'll find sometimes like yesterday, there was a lot of calls yesterday. And so I looked ahead or behind and the day before I had a few less. So I bumped a few of yesterday's call to two days ago, four months from now. So I could kind of even the load on calls. Ah, so you do a, a restack each week. You look at your call volume. Mm hmm. And I'm feeling it because I do it so, I've been doing it so long and so often. I know when I get to the, you know, end of a second or starting of a third, there's too many calls on that day. So I got to move them to some other days. And it doesn't matter. They, if you're in the same month and saying happy anniversary or even touching them, it's amazing how well it works. And it's cheap and it's inexpensive. So it's not critical that you're calling on the actual day, but just right around it, within that week or two? Within the week or two, mainly the month. Uh, so if you call them in August and they were their anniversary was in July, you might as well skip it. You're late. That's too late. Better to be early than late. And uh, we ha- I actually, we had a mistake in ours. There was one that was called two days ago. Uh, that was for a July anniversary, and it's and so I didn't have the anniversary call. I called them and I sent an anniversary letter, but I did not mention the anniversary because I it would have looked stupid to be late. How often does someone say, you know, I have a need for real estate services? It happens uh, probably 150 times a year. How many calls do you make in a year? Well, let's take uh, 1,600 times uh, three, so that's uh, 3,200, 4,800. I probably make 5,000 calls a year. 
Okay, so is that about 3% of the time? Yeah, I figure I'm getting a 10% turnover. I'm getting 150 deals out of 1,600 people in the database. The 10%, that may be the person you're calling doing something, or it may be a referral from them. Yeah, exactly. To somebody you haven't talked to before. Yes. Do you have any idea what percentage of each of those are occurring? In other words, of the 10% that are coming in, of the 150 transactions that are coming in, what, what percentage of those do you think are the people that are your past client actually doing something again, some kind of repeat versus a referral to someone new? I've not put a pencil to that, but I would say it's probably running 70% they're redoing something with us and 30% more referring people from somebody, their friend, their sister, their relative, whatever. Now, you're not just calling, right? You're also doing some mail. How often are you mailing and what are you sending out? Our mail program is very specific through trial and error. What we do with that is... In December, we send a year calendar. We do, we've been doing a calendar for years. In, in November, right before Thanksgiving, I send a Thanksgiving card. August time frame, we send a Broncos schedule. In February and March, we send a Rocky schedule. In June, I send a newsletter. In February, I send a newsletter. And then in those other months, they get a postcard saying it's February. Here's some little facts. Here's some stats on what the Brian Macker team is doing. Okay, so it sounds like you have maybe five or six things that you're going to do consistently every year. And then there's a filler month in between that you're going to fill and you're going to send them something different, something more about the team or your statistics or what's going on. They get 12 pieces of mail a year from us. And we were doing more. We realized we were doing we were doing postcards every month plus some filler pieces. And uh, we felt we could cut back and get it just to 12 pieces and not miss a beat. And that has, in fact, been the case. How often had you been doing it in the past? In the past, like I said, we were doing 12 postcards plus a calendar plus a Thanksgiving card plus two newsletters. So we were mailing one, two, three, four extra pieces a year in addition to the postcards. Okay, so you went from like 16 a year down to 12 a year and you didn't see a difference in the the return? Not at all, not at all. And now I will say they will sometimes, I if I've see in my uh, contact management program that I've left you a message eight times in a row, I may then send you a notepad saying, hey, missed you, just wanted to say hi, a handwritten note uh, that I'll enclose a magnet that has my card on it or a notepad that has my logo on it, just to mix it up a little bit. And with the advent of email, I've actually started doing that a little bit. And uh, that's been actually working pretty good. I got two res- yesterday out of the calls. I emailed two people, and both people responded. One gave me their new phone number, and the other one told me they were divorced and may have to sell later this year. So yesterday, I made 38 calls into the database, and from those 38 calls, two people raised their hand and gave me some information right off the bat and other people I spoke to, but nothing much cooking. Although one person said they're going to downsize next year after their daughter graduates. So that's, that's basically 5% or one out of 20, one out of 20 calls. You're finding somebody who wants to do something or is thinking about it. Yes. 
That's pretty good. And from my Floyd Wickman days of cold calling, uh, you know, if you can convert one out of 20, you're doing pretty darn good. Well, these aren't cold, though. These are these are warm. These people all know you or are familiar with you, and you've created a relationship over time. That's kind of your goal, isn't it, is to create a relationship with them. You're calling them four times a year, and you're building that up? Yes, absolutely. The calls themselves. You said you're making 30 to 50 calls per day, correct? Yes. Well, we know who you're talking to. We know what you're saying. Back to the goal or the objective, it sounds like it's just to make that touch as opposed to, again, this hard sale or, or really digging for a, a somebody who wants to do something. My goal is to touch them. My goal is to let them know I'm here because it seems like everybody knows a realtor. So my goal is to make sure I am top of mind and that they know I'm around. So between mail and a message, I frankly would rather get a message because I can be more efficient and get more calls in. What time of day do you call and how long does it take to get through 30 to 50 calls? Today, you are my calls. Typically, I do this from 9 to 11 in the morning. I try to work what I call an ideal day where I'm handling issues, problems, deals between 7.30 and 9, and then I try to get on the phone from 9. usually takes me an hour and a half to two hours to make those calls. We kind of went on a little tangent. We're talking about your ideal day. Let's pick that up and then come right back to the calls. You said 7 to 9, you try to clear up deals. From 9 to 11, you're going to make calls. What happens uh, for the rest of your ideal day? 11 to 12, I am returning the calls that might have come in while I was on my calling time, talking with my assistants, figuring out what needs to be done from 12 to 12.45, 1 o'clock. I'll eat a quick lunch. From 1 to 5, I do appointments. And five to six, I return calls and usually home eating and having fun by six o'clock. And you're doing that Monday through Friday? Yes. Typically, I don't work any Sundays and very few Saturdays, and I don't work evening. How do you get people to schedule an appointment during the afternoon rather than the evening? Ask. It is amazing if you ask. A lot of agents, and I've coached a few agents, uh, and they are now not working evenings or a lot of weekends. It's amazing what you can get a client to do. All you have to do is ask them, say, my schedule, I only have an opening at 3 o'clock on Friday. Will that work for you? And they'll say, how about 4? And I said, okay, let's do 4, but I do have a 6 o'clock, so if we can do 4, that would be fine. And you ask them to have a long lunch, uh, uh, go in later in the morning or, you know, get off of work early. And they do it for doctors. They do it for attorneys. They do it for a lot of other appointments. They should do it for us. Have you ever had someone who won't set an appointment in the afternoon or the morning? Oh, yeah. And I just then move them to when it's convenient. And there's been a couple times that if they're proven to be difficult and it's not something I really care if I get or not, then I might send one of my assistants. But I feel like I have to control the situation from the initial phone call. So I'm pretty insistent. That's my only opening. Oh, if you want to see me, you know, in the evening, we're going to have that might be the time I might do a Saturday appointment, depending on the house. And that's why you left that Saturday open a little bit. Although it sounds like you're trying to push everything into the week. I try to really blast pretty hard during the week and leave my weekends alone. But Saturday is kind of my flex day. I'll only go to your house, though, if I'm pretty certain you're going to sign paperwork. Brian, do you do any kind of 
past client appreciation parties or events? I do not. I, I made a weak attempt at having a Santa Claus sitting thing for a couple of years, and I just didn't feel the time was worth the investment. And I feel I get more from the phone calls than I would. And I can talk to them more through a phone call than I can at an event. I've chosen not to do that. I've heard it works well for some. I am a high D personality in a social environment. I kind of, I can adapt, but I'd rather not. I'd rather get to the points and get on with things. You mentioned that a good chunk of the business that's coming in is referrals to someone new. When You sense that the referral is coming about. How do you try to make that happen? And what I mean is, do you ask the person that's doing the referring to give your number to the person who's going to get referred and have them call you? Do you try to collect contact information and contact the referral yourself? When I have, uh, and Mike, I think what you're saying is like, if I get that client and they say, my neighbor is thinking of selling or my cousin is, and I say, well, who is your neighbor? Do you have their phone number? I would rather be the one making the contact. Oftentimes, they don't want that. They'd say, well, let me talk to them. And I say, great, can I send you a couple cards? Let me know what I can do to be of service for them and just have them call me directly. And then at that point, I would give that client, obviously, my phone number again and say, you know, I'm available all the time. Here's my cell phone, too, if you want to give me a call over the weekend. I'll give them a little more of my phone numbers in that situation than I normally do. So you try to get the referrals contact information and go direct, but if not, you try to make it as easy as possible for the person doing the referring. Yes. Brian, is there any other suggestions or recommendations you'd make to agents who are are either already or planning on working their sphere of influence and past clients? Do it. They need to do it. New agents and experienced agents alike, if they haven't been doing it, they're afraid to talk to that client because they haven't spoke to them for two years. New agents are afraid to do it because they don't have a line of scripts. And scripts can be found online or in listening to your interviews. And but a simple script is practicing Ford, uh, family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. And they just got to pick up the phone and do it, and they got to block time. And I say that because if making a call was a listing appointment, they would be at the listing appointment. And they have to look at their calls as the listing appointment or buyer appointment, and that's what it is. They wouldn't put that off, so they can't put their calls off either. Brian, how do you stay motivated to make those calls day after day after day after day? It's money, money, money. Dialing for dollars is the way I look at it, and I have goals of what I want to sell and do each month, and I have found that by making these calls, it helps me achieve my goals. I visually, you know, uh, I know that if I'm making my calls, then I can rest and work out later in the day. I don't have to feel, I've gotten to a point if I don't make calls, I feel very guilty about it. I'm that dedicated to making my calls. Have you been making the calls since the very beginning? Did you did you make the calls 26, 27 years ago? Uh, I made calls to expireds uh, when I first got in. I had a database then of maybe 50 people. 
So I called those 50 people and let them know, but I realized real quick I couldn't call them every week. So I went to expireds and I started calling them. And then those people, I started adding to my database. I tried to work. I've always tried to work for sale by owners and I've never done well at it. So I don't even try these days, but I always was able to pick up the phone. And then I went to Floyd Wickman sweat hogs in 1990 and it taught me how to do cold calls uh, better. I tried it a little bit in the early 80s. And I just would call and ask people, do you want... I'd actually knocked on doors is what I did. And then Floyd Wickman taught me how to make cold calls and get to the points that I've gotten to today. There was an agent out there who's been in the business for 5, 10 years, and they haven't been calling their past clients. How do you recommend they break that ice Good question. How they break the ice is very, very simple, especially with today's technology. So I'll pretend, Mike, for a moment, uh, you're, I'm the agent who hasn't called you for five years. Mike, this is Brian over at Remax. Long time no see. How are you? Uh, uh, Brian? Uh, hi, Bri- who is this, Brian? I'm Brian Macker. I'm the agent that sold you your home, and uh, forgive me for not calling for so long. Uh, I've had a bad database, uh, and we are now upgrading that, and I just wanted to touch back and see how everything's going. How is everything? Oh, I I know now. Hey, Brian. Uh, Yeah, yeah, everything's, uh, everything's been fine. Good, good. Well, I can understand you not quite remembering me, but uh, we're in the process of trying to update our databases and do better at staying in communication. Is it okay if I keep you in our database and mail to you and touch base with you every now and then? Uh, yeah, I guess that'd be fine. Sure. Awesome, awesome. Well, I just wanted to let you know, uh, first, I apologize for not staying in better touch with you. And second, if there's anything I can do to be a service in the future, uh, please let me know, okay? Okay. And that would be that conversation. You got to first confess that you've not done a very good job. And then second, ask permission to reintroduce them to you. And third, you better do what you promise because if you don't touch base with them again, you, you have permanently damaged yourself. I noticed how you blame the database. You messed up. I really kind of pushed the blame off on the database and bad database management. Mm-hmm. And that allowed you to kind of save face. Correct. We can, everybody understands databases, computers are flawed. And blaming it is a, you know, it wasn't doing what I thought it was doing. I thought we were reaching to you and forgive me. You can use, I mean, how many times has people's computers crashed and you've lost all the information? Many times people think they're, they got a system working and it wasn't or isn't. And as agents, and I continually keep finding, oh, my website isn't working doing something right. We need to be checking our systems on a at least a monthly basis to make sure everything is working the way we think it is. So you use the database as your excuse, hey, we've just, uh, our database wasn't working the way we were supposed to. I've got a new system that will allow me to follow up better with you. Is it okay if I can touch base with you in the future? Nine out of 10 people will say it's okay. And that person that doesn't, you say, I understand, thank you very much, but if there's anything I can do in the future, let me know. And guess what I do? I'd mail them anyway. I'd mail them anyway. Sure, I'd give a call in, in three, four months anyway. 
at least call them on the anniversary of when they bought their home and reestablish the relationship. Sure. Because they won't remember they told you no. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Have you ever made that call? Uh, well, I don't know. It sounds like you've been staying up with your database. Have you ever? I have not had to make that call. <laughs> you, you haven't fallen behind yet. <laughs> no, but I've coached some uh, other agents, and they have made that call, and they have uh, had the uh, results that I've just shared. Nine out of ten people have been okay. The one that hasn't, they said, apologized again, put them in the mail list, called them on the anniversary, and it was like nothing has ever happened. Why we're talking about your sphere of influence, your database, your past client database here, do you ever take people out of the database? And if so, why? I will take people out of the database if they request to be taken out. I've had uh, the occasional uh, or adopted agent or somebody say, you know, uh, Mike was my agent. I'm going to be loyal to him till the day I die. And I say, Mike is a great agent. I understand. I just didn't want to let anything fall through the cracks. I will remove you from our database. And they say, thank you, and we hang up. Or if I get a person that uh, seems distant or has become distant or doesn't seem to like me, uh, I will remove them. I will also remove people who have been gone for 10 years uh, in other areas of the country that haven't responded or done anything with any of the phone calls, the mailings, or anything. After 10 years, I will take them out. There's two schools of thought on these sphere of influence databases. One is to keep them uh, very focused, tight, only the people you think are going to repeat or refer. And another philosophy is just add everybody you meet to the database and grow it as big as possible to create as many options as possible. Which of those two philosophies do you think you follow? I think I go more to the middle. Uh, Michael Mayer, his seven steps, uh, he teaches being very, very focused I like it. I think focus to me is a little limiting, but throwing every single person, the only way they get into our database is if I've had a face-to-face with them and a pretty good exchange with them. I have another file. I call them, it's a prospect lead file. Those people are not in the database. They have reminders in the computer to call them, but nobody gets into the database until we've had a face-to-face meeting of some sort where I know what they are and who they're going to be. Yeah, that's a pretty high standard. You have to have a face-to-face meeting. Yes. I won't put a person in the database that called on the house yesterday or calls me and says they might want a list and then doesn't call back. If they say they might want a list, then I have to push that to an interview face-to-face. And then from there, they would get into the database. But if it was just a general inquiry, like I get internet inquiries for market analyses and stuff, those people don't get into the database, not unless I've had a face-to-face with them. Sounds like you're keeping a, a separate database for these general inquiries, these general leads. How big is that database? I think we have another 2,000 leads sitting over there over the years, and they get a drip campaign, or Leanne uh, helps make those calls of prospects, and that is pretty separate 
that is following up on email leads and internet leads that are what I would call warm at best, and that has a whole separate prospecting arm. Brian, thank you for telling us about your your past clients and sphere of influence. I know you're also doing television commercials. How long have you been doing television commercials? I started uh, the TV commercials three years ago. Uh, I got permission from Russell Shaw to borrow his script and his message. He is a very successful agent down in Phoenix, and he and Pat Hyben really spent money and did a lot of that. I They allowed me to use their script up here, and I've used it here where it's kind of smoothed out the edges of the foreclosure market, and it's it's kept our listing counts going where they need to go. Ah, so these television commercials are targeting sellers? They are targeting sellers. We do. I go through Fox and the CW network because that's what I can afford, and they basically play this commercial 30, well, I pay for 60, and I get as many as 90 and as little as 40, but it goes at 60, uh, we pay for 60, 60 30-second spots per month, and I try to get it around news time on the Fox station, which is at 9 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the morning. When I said the 40, around elections and special events, they cut our time, but then they make it up for me later. You have maybe a a one-year contract, and so it all balances out by the end of the year? Oh, yeah. And generally, I, I, like I say, I pay for 60, and I think I, there's been months where I've had over 100, 100 spots because I was the filler, and I've got a very good sales rep at Fox. Let's do this. Why don't we listen to one of those TV ads and kind of get a gist of what's going on? You can help us fill in any of the gaps. Okay. You know this guy? Meeker? Maker? Maker? No matter how you say it, I'm selling homes at a record pace. I'm Brian Macker of the Macker team at Remax. I can sell your home for the most amount of money in the least amount of time and with the fewest hassles. I'm not bragging. I'm applying for a job. If you're not happy, fire me. You're in control. I'm Brian Macker, and I want to be your realtor. To learn more, log on to fox21news.com and click on Best Pets for the Macker team. Oh, so that was a 30-second spot. Mm-hmm. You used a little humor in the beginning. Does you usually have a challenge with people pronouncing your name? I do. And the first part of that is different depending on the time. That has changed four times in three years. And uh, when we were in short sales, I would say I forgot what that was. Then as the market was improving, I, I had a commercial say, have you noticed the market's improving? Homes are doing well. Call us. And then the third one was saying, do it now before you know it gets away from you. And now this one kind of came to me as inspiration. Everywhere I go, they mispronounce my last name. And we were at a baseball tournament in uh, March. And every time my son came up to bat, they pronounced his name different. And I go, that would be a, a funny commercial, kind of playing with that a little bit. And I, I put the script together, no matter how you say it, um, selling homes at a record pace. And so it's usually me changing the first uh, couple sentences, and then I'm not bragging, I'm applying for a job. If you're not happy, fire me. And that is the canned script that Russell Shaw and Pat Hyben more or less own, and I had to get permission to use that part of the script. Now, you've been doing this for three years. Has it been successful? 
It has. Like I say, I feel it smooths out the rough edges. It accounts probably for three to four extra listings a month over what we would get with the database. And it gets my name more out in front of people and my current clients, they see the commercial and the referrals know the commercial because it plays a lot. And the leads we get from it generally are good qualified leads. We probably go out on Oh, five listing appointments extra a month and probably convert three of the five per month. So it accounted last year. Last year, it accounted for 28 transactions. So you're tracking that really well. How do you track that? Do they have to call a certain number or go to a certain website that's only set aside for these calls or leads that are coming in off TV? Uh, We do it very simple. I ask every listing lead, how'd you hear about me? And it's very, we do an initial phone interview for listings and that's almost the first question. So Mike, how did you hear about me? And you're going to say, Brian referred you or I saw your commercial. And then when we track this at the end of the year, we know where our business is coming from. So 28 closings, you said you're putting in on average 60 spots per month. Uh, so that's about two a day. How much is that costing you to 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 put those ads out? We pay 3000 a month for 60 spots. And how much did it cost to create the ad, the production cost? That's included in the 3000 per month. That They didn't charge me extra for it. So they were hurting and I, I needed an outlet. So they need, with the economy bad, they wanted people. So the contract I have, I can change that spot twice a year and, and at no cost. And so I get... Two changes, I can make two commercials a year and 60 spots a month for 3000 a month. How do you create the commercial itself? Do you go into their studio? Do you write the script? Do they write the script? How, how do you pull that all together? I write the script. Like I say, a lot of it's already there. So I just change the message. And then like that commercial that we just listened to was done in the front parking lot of our Remax building. It's got the big building with Remax in the background. The last one that still plays 30% of the time was done at night in a person's front yard. And I'm standing behind a sold sign. Then another one I did, I'm walking in a neighborhood showing them field of houses that I've sold. Another one, I'm on a hilltop where I'm scanning over the city saying how I've sold this for all these years and that kind of thing. It varies depending on what we feel like or what we think the season is saying. They wanted me to go up to the top of Pikes Peak and do one, and I didn't want to do what they wanted me to do. So she has ideas, I have ideas, and I thought if I did the one on Pikes Peak, I'd be too full of myself, so I didn't do that one. How long does it take to lay down the track that that they're going to actually end up using and editing down? Are you able to knock this out in a couple minutes? Does it take all day? How, How long does it take? I've been able to do the last two within an hour. Wow. And I could have done them faster, but they have, uh, it's, you know, they like to get about five good takes on it. And generally I can knock that out in the first 15, 20 minutes. And then we try a little different angle and do it again. But from setup to finish, it's one hour. Generally, I try to do it early in the morning or uh, when the weather's the best when I'm doing it outside. Who does the editing or the selection of which one of those cuts they're going to take? They do. 
then they send me the version and then I approve it or disapprove it. Like this last one, they didn't have the logo part big enough. So I saw that and I said, let's make the logo part bigger and make the graph look bigger. And so they do that and then it comes back and approved. Generally from when we film to when I get an edited version is one week and we usually have it from filming to in the TV two weeks. Let's go back to some of those numbers. It sounds like it's costing you about 36000 a year. It ended up resulting in 28 closings. I don't know how much you're making on average. Could you give us some kind of perspective? Well, around 6500 So, you know, one deal a month pays for it. One deal a month pays for it and puts money in my pocket. Anything I spend, I try to get twice out of it. So if I'm going to spend 3000 I got to make sure I'm making at least six. I just ran some quick math. I, I hope I'm right when I say this, but it looked to me like you're about five to one. You're bringing in $5 for every $1 you put out in the commercial. Does that sound about right? That might be a little high. It's probably maybe four to one. Four to one. Still not bad. So you're getting a return. How long did it take you? You'd been doing it for three years. Did, did you hit a home run the first month or how long did it take before you were starting to see a return on your investment? Probably about three months. And during those first three months, were you doing a lot of experimentation, changing, modifying, trying to dial it in? Not at all. Everybody that I spoke to, including Russell and Pat, when you're tired of it, that's when everybody else is starting to notice it. So I do not, once I've approved it, it runs for six months, eight months, a year. And we know after three or four months if it's a good one or not. The one that we have now that is the one you just heard, We had two last week that called on it. I haven't had a call this week that I'm aware of. And so it varies some where we seem to get more heavy calls coming from it or in the winter months when people are more inside. Summer has so far been slower and that seems to be the case the way it works. Have you considered testing it out on different stations? Well, I'm on the Fox network and CW network. And I have thought about other channels, but I can't afford them. I don't want to spend that much money. Have you tried radio? I have not. I did radio probably about 12 or 15 years ago and didn't get anything from it and felt like I spent a ton of money and didn't get anything from it. So I felt burned. I've not tried radio. Any advice to someone thinking about, uh, one of our agents thinking about doing a television commercial? Have a good message. Be clear, concise. You got to follow up, and you got to you got to do it, and you got to do it for a long period of time. There's another agent now in my market doing a different message. How he'll guarantee it and buy it if he doesn't sell it. But when I go compete against that person, when they hear what he's going to buy their home for, it's a gimmick. So if you are doing a commercial, be quick, concise, and back up honestly what you're selling. In my case, you can always fire me. It's been that way ever since I started, so it's easy. And you got to be quick and loud is what I've been told. Being soft just doesn't get it. Quick and loud. When you say quick and loud, do you mean get the, get the information out there quickly because you only have the 30 seconds? That's right. You can't afford more and being soft. Oh, I'll sell your home. Please call me. I don't think that's a good message. I, my message, give me the interview. If you don't like what I say, fire me. If I don't do it, get rid of me. And that's easy to back up. I put my money where my mouth is. 
Yeah, when we spoke with Russell Shaw about his television commercials, he said they're harder than radio commercials because your your face is there, and if you make an odd squint in your eye or your mouth or whatever, it, it could throw people off, even though your voice is sounding clear and crystal clear and, and everything else is good. It doesn't sound like you had that problem. It sounds like you're kind of a natural. I haven't heard that, but uh, I don't think I have an issue. I think I have a friendly face. I, I haven't had that issue. I'm able to look in the camera and be very natural about it. We've been talking about marketing and lead generation. You've been doing this business for 27, 28 years. What has been your worst marketing idea, worst marketing method, the thing that, that worked the worst? You would advise someone to stay away from, or, or at least it, it didn't work for you. For me, the worst is uh, we have bought leads, people, we've paid money up front to people who say they will generate business and uh, get expireds or get for sale by owners and get stuff for us. And we have not been able to convert. And I have lost a lot of money on those particular internet software people trying to get uh business through other avenues and then referring it to us. It, it just has not been a win situation for us. You mentioned your third source is internet leads. What are you doing for internet leads? Internet leads, I use ProStep Marketing. They host our website. We're actually uh, having a meeting next week. We're revamping, rehashing, redoing everything, uh, trying to keep it fresh. I own 70 different domains. I've bought every almost every domain that I can think of that someone might look and it generates everything coming back into our website. And on our website, we have various ways you can search for homes and uh, we get the emails that come into my phone and I do immediate follow-up with that. And that's where Leanne follows me up and does more lead follow-up after I've done the initial one. Leanne is one of your buyer agents? Yes. Most of the leads that are coming in from this source are buyer leads. That is correct. That's where we get a handful of our buyer leads. We also get it from our 24-hour uh, hotline. It used to be, it's called VoicePad, and that system comes directly into my phone via text message, and I text, I, everything comes through my phone. So I see the leads coming in, and then I get that initial response because I have figured out that I am faster and more disciplined and returning calls and trying to capture that initial lead than my buyer agents. How are you driving traffic to your website in the first place? How are people finding it? Well, like I said, we do a lot of domain names, and those domains have keywords like zip codes, uh, neighborhood names, things like that that drives people there. I blog on a weekly basis, and every print piece we do, every flyer, every hotline, every sign, everything we have has our website on it. And our cards have a uh, QR code on the back that drives people to the website. And obviously our cards and all that info has our website. So we get good traffic there. I would like to see better. If I have a weakness, I think I don't pay enough attention to the internet stuff because it's colder. I think I do better with the actual calls that come in and convert in them. So it sounds like you're mainly doing SEO, search engine optimization, where people are doing a Google search and you pop up and they come over, or from one of your marketing pieces. It sounds like you're not doing any buying of, uh, say, pay-per-click. You're not buying traffic in any way. Is that correct? 
I am not. I'm not buying traffic in any fashion. And the transactions you closed last year, what percentage of those transactions were from the internet? I'd say less than 5%, 2 or 3%, not much. What's been interesting is a lot of the good internet leads we had were referred from somebody else. Oh, go to his website. You know, a lot of our military overseas clients are on our website using it, and it's because somebody here locally said, oh, go visit Brian, go to his website. Or somebody, uh, there's a client that we sold his home over in Wolf Ranch and is now living in Germany, and he's referred three people to us. And it's because I keep mailing to him even though he's in Germany, and I just emailed him again yesterday asking about him and his family and everything else. So it pays to stay in touch with your clients, even when they move to Germany. Did you say you're mailing to Germany? Actually, I I need to take that back. We don't mail to Germany anymore. We tried, and I kept getting it bounced back. Before the Postal Service changed the way they do codes, it was going there, but it no longer goes there. Uh, So now you're contacting people outside the country by phone and maybe email? All email, not phones. So they come up those three or four times a year, and they'll get an email from me three or four times a year. There's one lady who's been in Germany, then Spain, and now she's down in San Antonio, Texas. And I sold her home 13 years ago, and she called me, and I got to refer to an agent in San Antonio that she closed on in January this year. What percentage of your gross revenue do you think is coming from referral fees? Last year, uh, we did 12 referrals, which isn't a lot, but uh, there's probably 12 to probably about 24000 That helps pay for the postage to the whole group, right? It does, and buys lunch. <laughs> <laughs> let's do this, Brian. Let's switch gears, and let's talk about your team. I know you have a team. Let's go through the positions on the team and then their responsibilities, Big picture of my team is uh, I am the lister and I am the rainmaker and I'm the prospector. Then I have Leanne who is a buyer agent and she does some listings, not very many. Then I have Lisa who helped us with uh, short sales and REOs and she is a buyer agent. She also helps me with listings just in case. So they both know how to list, but they, they very rarely do it. Then I have Stephanie, who is my closing coordinator. She handles everything from contract to close. She does the follow-up calls. She helps negotiate the inspections. She gets title work order, gets the files done. And then Stacy's my listing coordinator. She helps get the listing packets ready to go. She takes the photos. She does the data entry for all the listings. She calls agents for feedback. And then we have Courtney, who is my errand runner. She runs errands, kind of fills in around the gaps, uh, just as kind of here part-time to full-time. depends on the week. She's just kind of a fill-in around the rough edges. Now, if I counted correctly, you have two buyer agents? Yes. Was this basically the the makeup of your team last year when you closed the 185? Yes. How long have these folks been with you? Have they been with you uh, a long period of time? Stephanie, my closing coordinator, has been with me 19 years. Stacy, my listing coordinator's uh, getting ready to be at 10 years. Leanne's been with me six, and Lisa's been with me five. 
How are you creating that longevity, this retention with your team? A lot of people ask that. I had another agent, Tony, who was with me for 11 years, and he left uh, last year, and he wanted to be his own guy. But with everybody that stays with me, I think I create a good team atmosphere. I honor them, even though they don't get the recognition I get with phone calls and things like this and the REMAX awards that I've achieved. But I reward them with a lot of praise. I have weekly, if we hit our sales number, they I give them $10 gift certificates to Panera Bread or Taco Bell or somewhere. And then if we hit our monthly goals, we celebrate with a lunch out. And then yearly, we do something special. And I pay for them to be at the Christmas party. And and I don't get in their way. I try not to micromanage and they understand me and they compliment me. I am a high D where they have different personality types of I's and S's and C's that I need to make a surrounded business. So we all seem to get along real well that way. Have you intentionally picked certain personality types for certain positions? Yes. For the listing coordinator and closing coordinator, those need to be SC personalities so they can relate to people and yet cover all the details where my buyer agents are more of an ID and some S personality where they relate well, but they're also outgoing enough to ask for the order and follow up. And then I'm the D and I'm the mo- Lisa has some D tendencies, but I'm the D that drives it and keeps everybody accountable. You haven't had to bring on a new person for a while. When you were doing that, do you like to pick people with experience or no experience? I like new people. I don't like experience. I think if they have experience, I got to break too many bad habits. If they have experience less than six months, I don't want them to have much because I can't teach them the way I want them to work. A lot of people have approached me that have been at it two or three years that aren't making it, and I would, I would not hire somebody like that. What kind of characteristics do you look in for the people that you do hire? First and foremost, being trustworthy and honest. They have to have good ethics, good character. I probably would say I've never hired a smoker, so I wouldn't want any smokers because I don't. I'm pretty health conscious. I would want them to be ready to work hard and not get thanked all the time for it because we don't get thanked much in our job. We just work hard. And being self-driven and the talent that I would look for today is I would want Avenue talent, not cul-de-sac talent. And what I mean by that, if I were hiring someone new today, I would want a person that could do a little bit of everything and knows a lot about stuff. With the way internet and computers are, I'm 53 years old, so I don't know as much as some of the 20-somethings. So I would want a person that knows a lot about other other ways, other things, so we could have an avenue of talent in here instead of just specializations. Are all the people on your team licensed? My buyer agents are the only ones licensed. How do you compensate these folks? With Stephanie and Stacy, the closing and listing coordinators, they're paid hourly plus small bonuses for the amount of closings we do. And then for Lisa and Leanne, they are on commission splits. And then I cover their office bills. Is that commission split flat? Is it the same no matter how much volume? It doesn't vary or based on volume or source of the business? 
Yeah, it doesn't vary. If we do new construction and get 4%, then uh, the split jumps up a little bit. And if it's a family member or a, a real close friend of one of them, then the split changes dramatically. Pretty much I'm, I don't get really anything on family members or real close friends, and they keep the whole thing. On the business that you're generating, the leads that you bring in, would you mind telling us what you're paying as a percent? They get paid 40% and I get paid 60 And then when they generate the business, it goes up quite a bit. No. I should have said that differently. You said when they have a family member. If it's a family member, then it goes to a 90-10 split. But generally, if they generate it or I generate it, it doesn't matter. It stays 40-60. Oh, okay. So it's only for this family exclusion. That's correct. And on the rest of the time, it's at 40%. Yep. Unless they've got something weird or they come to me, but generally we keep it. That way we're not arguing about where it came from. Right. (laughs) Been there. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, you start burying it and then it could get into an argument who they were or where they came from. And I just don't even want to go there. And they get enough buyers where they seem to be very happy with that. Well, it's obviously working for them six and five years. He just had somebody 11 years. It obviously is a structure that works. Yes. And it's also working for you because you're not paying everything out and and wishing you hadn't done that. Right now, no. I, I don't think I would change that arrangement at all. I think the key thing that I see a lot of agents make the mistake, they hire too many people and then they're not doing enough transactions. I'd rather have my buyer agents, uh, could we handle a third? Probably. And when we, the one left, one of these others were struggling. So by narrowing it down to two, it kept them both busy. They're both working with buyers every single day so they don't slow people or unbusy people have too much time to complain. So I'd rather run lean and mean where we're all overworking a little bit rather than have us sitting around wondering what to do. Your two buyer agents last year, how many transactions did each one of them close? 63 transactions between the two of them. The split between the two of them, I'm not quite remembering. It seems like one did like uh, 35 and the other one did 30. They're closing about two to three transactions a month. Mm-hmm. And then I did about 125 listings. Do you feel that you've capped out at the 125? Do you think you could do more than that? I think I could, but I've gotten to a point where it's like I'm getting to a point in my career, why do I need to do more? I'm not sure. I haven't attended any real seminars since Howard Britton passed away, and uh I've kind of gotten to a point in my life and career where my passive income is uh, doing well and doing 175, 185, 200 transactions is I've gotten to a point of saying that's probably enough. And it's uh, a case of balance. I'd rather spend time playing around a golf or watching my son play baseball rather than going on one more deal. Have you considered bringing in a listing partner, someone to take over some of the listings? I've thought about it, but I still like the hunt. I've thought about it a lot over the last several years, thinking, okay, I could multiply myself and do more. But at the same time, I've gone back to the question, 
I'm not ready to do that. I like to go on the hunt. And part of what derailed that is our economy. Uh, I thought about doing that a few years ago. And then we went into a struggling economy. And I go, you know, I need to be out there making the money instead of losing some on splits. Thought about it a little bit recently. But at the same time, our economy here in Colorado Springs is not totally recovered. So I'm not comfortable in letting go of all that yet. You know, there are going to be some people listening to us talk and listening to your team. They're watching the structure of your operation. They're going to ask themselves, are you profitable? Very. We do very well. Would you mind disclosing to us what your profit margin is as a percentage of your revenues? Let me do some calculating here. I think by the end of the day, I run my uh, company as a... uh, I hope I'm not misstating this. I think I'm an S corporation where everything carries through. So I fund a lot of stuff with pre-tax dollars. And even after that, when our income plus savings and everything, it's almost running about a 50-50 split after paying people and everything. Your estimation, you have a 50% net profit margin. So $100 comes in the top of your organization as revenue. $50 comes out the bottom as profit. Correct. Do you pay yourself a salary or do you take a commission? I get a salary each month. My wife gets a salary each month. My son gets a very small salary each month. And uh, then we get bonuses at the end of the year. Or me and my wife get bonuses at the end of the year. So when you say 50%, does that include your salary or is the salary already come out before the 50%? That includes my salary. So if you added the salary to the profit, it's 50%? Yes. We're bringing in to us personally 50% of what we're making. So you've structured it under a S-corp. Why did you do it that way? We wanted to use pre-tax dollars to pay for things like our health, our cars, insurances, various things. It just made it a lot easier. And from an accounting point of view, it's taxed better than it would be if I brought it all in personally. And through uh, Chris Bird, who uh, has been at many events, uh, through his guidance and my accountant, we've structured it into that uh, type of format. So you had help setting this up. Oh, yes. If anybody ever has a chance to listen to Chris Bird in any format, they need to do that. Brian, you talked about your time management. You've got this perfect day. Do you have a perfect week or a perfect day? Is every day exactly the same as what you described to us earlier? Different days, I'm doing a few different things. Tuesday mornings, I have staff meetings to follow up with my buyer agents and my whole staff and bring us all together to regroup, make sure we're on the same page. Wednesday mornings, I call all my sellers and give them their feedback. I call 90% of the sellers every Wednesday and the 10% variance. Sometimes I have Stacy call them and that kind of rotates around. Thursdays, Fridays, Mondays are calls, calls, and calls and stay pretty much to the ideal time. I do make sure I'm off early on Wednesday evenings so I can go do karate. And then I do my workouts early in the morning on Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, early mornings. Karate. How long have you been doing karate? I've been doing karate uh, 19 years. I'm a fourth degree black belt and I'm also an instructor there because of my rank. When you say karate, do you mean karate or taekwondo? It's universal kempo karate. 
Karate is a blend of Taekwondo, Judo, Thai kickboxing. Now it's been getting into more of the mixed martial arts. So on Wednesday evenings and many Saturday mornings when I'm getting ready for uh, a seminar test uh, slash fighting environment, uh, we're wrestling, hitting, fighting for a couple, three hours on a Wednesday evening. Good way to get rid of frustration. (laughs) That's right. Well, Brian, what drives you? That's really a good question. What drives me is, even to this day, probably a fear of failure or a fear of loss. I know that I have to keep doing these systems to keep things rolling. And my goals in life, I want to travel and see the whole world. Fred Gross is one of my mentors and current coaches, and I try to live every year and every day as tens, twenties, and hundreds, where I schedule big trips and little trips. And I'm motivated to do this well by being able to go do trips. Like right now, while I'm talking to you, my screensaver's showing me on the coast of Kona, Hawaii, walking on a a volcano. And then another one was here where I was in New Zealand and or Costa Rica. And this year we're going to hike the Patagonias. And I'm motivated to go have fun. I work hard, but I like to play hard as well. How much time do you take off each year? This year, uh, with uh, all the base, my son's being recruited for baseball. So we've done a lot of baseball trips. And this year we'll probably end up taking Probably about five weeks off. And it sounds like you like to travel during those five weeks. Yes. This year so far, we've been to Arizona twice. We've been to California twice. I'll be in Arizona two more times, and I will be doing the Patagonias. Last year, we were in Costa Rica. Uh, The year before that, I was in Italy. The year before that, I was in Italy. Then we were in New Zealand and Australia and Hawaii a few times. Yeah, we travel. We usually do a big trip every year. Brian, why have you been so successful? I have a gift of being able to be very disciplined. To sit here and make two hours of calls for me is easy. And I know for most people it isn't. I also learned I'm very good with time management I had to learn that when I was a single dad, being a realtor, my first five years in real estate, I was a single parent with us. Well, Ryan was six months old, so I had to learn very quick how to block time to do different things. And I think my time management skills and my discipline are my greatest assets. Brian, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Being a new agent, you got to find clients. Uh, they want to start with computers and internets, and you need a computer, and you need a contact management program that allow you to do the follow-up that I have done. So I would get a computer. I'd get a good contact management program like Top Producer or Realty Juggler. Or there's various ones. We've been with Agent Office for the last, uh, what, 15 years, and uh, they're struggling to keep up with the times. But uh, top producer, there's various programs. Start a contact management. Then go out, and if you don't have people to call, go knock on doors and ask for business. And use the power of we until you have an I. And what I mean by that is if you're a new agent, we just sold a home in your neighborhood. We can get it sold quickly. Have you thought about selling your home? Do you know of any neighbors wanting to sell your home? Great. If you know of anybody in the future, let me know and find out if that's a person you can add to a database and start building your database that way. 
I would tell you if you don't like door knocking, cold call. And everybody gets afraid of cold calling, but I don't know one person ever that has been busted for cold calling. So have that same conversation. Go to people like me or Floyd Wickman, Mike Ferry graduates and learn how to make a phone call. Because if you don't make the phone call or make a face-to-face, you won't have any business. Don't buy it. Go out and get face-to-face. So you recommend that they do these contacts, these calls, either door knocking or or phone calls versus buying internet leads. I do because if you're a new agent, you can't afford to buy leads. And you need to learn the skills to talk to the lead if you did buy it. So the way you learn the skills is getting on the phone where it doesn't cost you or door knock where it doesn't cost you. You don't want to learn the skills and fail for something that you're paying for. Brian, do you think the top agent interviews like the one now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think they're extremely valuable. I think even agents like myself need to keep learning, need to keep polishing the sword. I have a pretty good sword, but it still needs to stay sharp. And if I want to stay maintaining even at 175, 200 closings, I still need to know what is happening out there and I need to know what other people are doing. They may be doing something that is like mine that I can tweak. I think it's very important. Brian, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't addressed yet? All I can do, and when I talk to new agents in any format and seminars, I think the thing that most new agents just get very intimidated by is making the phone call. And it's inexpensive, it's profitable, and they got to do it. And they got to treat phone calls and prospecting time as listings and buyers because they're tomorrow's listings and buyers. Well, Brian, you demonstrate the power of focus and phone calls. You focus the majority of your effort on your past clients and sphere of influence. You make 30 to 50 phone calls per day to build and maintain your relationship with your database. You put a system in place to simplify this approach, and you have the discipline to stick with it day after day. The results are amazing. 10% of your database turns into clients year after year. It's a simple yet very profitable model. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold over $1 billion of real estate in her career. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com.
Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.